0: from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God.
1: Good morning. My name is Libby Baum, and I'm currently serving as an elder here at First Presbyterian. Would you please join me in the call to worship? Our God is the creator of heaven and earth. God created every blade of grass and towering tree. Our God is the architect and builder of all things. God formed the mountains and formed us all. Our God is the molder and shaper of things to come. God has plans for us, a future with hope. Come, let us worship the Lord of the past, present, and future. Come, let us worship God. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5, which can be found on page 651 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Our second
2: scripture lesson this morning is from the Gospel of John. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word for you and for me this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding in the Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Friends, again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
0: Lord, open our eyes and our ears and our heart to a new and fresh word. May we be illumined in such a way that we would see ourselves not as we are, but as you see us. As beloved children, as witnesses of your gospel. And so to that end, O Lord, would you open up this text... Would you use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to form us and transform us, even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as long as there are weddings, there will be bad wedding guests. Take, for example, the Dayton, Ohio man, friends with the groom, for 12 years, who was Arrested after he left the reception, he was found to have 55 cash gift envelopes that he stole from the safe at the reception that were intended for the new couple. True story. That's a bad wedding guest. (laughs) Or how about the Irish groom living in the U.S. who invited his childhood mates to be a part of the celebration, arriving in the early afternoon on the day before the rehearsal. They convinced him to party through the night. They convinced him to party through uh, the next morning. Finally, they went to bed right before lunch the day of the rehearsal. They slept through it, slept through the dinner and when the bride heard, it eventually took a lot of hours of pastoral counseling and a reservoir of forgiveness to have the wedding go on as planned. True story. That, those are bad wedding guests. Or, or how about the best man making a toast to the newlyweds and confessing during the toast his as-long-as-I-can-remember-affection for the Bride, claiming that she was his first and only love. True story. That's a bad wedding guest. Finally, how about the woman who somehow found out that the wedding reception that, that she was attending, that the reception ran out of wine? How about the woman who, who who stuck her nose into somebody else's business, intervened in such a way as to try to solve the problem? She was just a guest trying to solve the problem that the wedding party had no more wine, enlisting her unmarried son to help her out. True story. That's a bad wedding guest. The woman we're speaking of here is the woman we meet in John 2. We meet her once more. Her name is Mary, and she is the mother of Jesus, and in John's gospel narrative, Mary shows up actually only twice. She bookends, for John's gospel, the ministry of Jesus. She shows up in this story, in this retelling of Jesus' first public act, at least according to John, his first public act of ministry. And then she shows up later in chapter 19. Many of you know this story. She's at the foot of the cross at Jesus' crucifixion. Now, throughout the generations, scholars and lay people alike have struggled to interpret the details of this text. Yes, the point of the whole narrative is relatively clear as you you get to the end and you understand what, what John is trying to do in the arc of his storytelling, of what he's trying to communicate to anybody who would be reading his good news message with the ability to turn water into wine. The writer John wants to communicate that this Jesus is unique. That this Jesus is spe- special, he is vested with power to perform miracles, and his miracle making ability, his, his capacity to forgive sins, his theological innovation, and his healing ministries will all be elevated by John to make a very particular point, and this text in John 2 is in that line, to make the point that in this Jesus, God is revealing God's glory that Jesus is unique, and that he has been chosen to complete the work of God's redemption. Still how we get there, the details of this text are a bit puzzling. First, why would Mary ask Jesus to intervene? Why would Mary ask Jesus to do something about this wine shortage? Mary is just a guest. John makes that clear at the beginning of this text. Jesus is just a guest. It wasn't up to the guests to worry about all that would take place in the reception. It wasn't their job. Intervention, in fact, could potentially embarrass the host. Exposing the host, at best, being unprepared or at worst being stingy and not buying enough wine to last through the night. But Mary is trying to intervene. She's sticking her nose into somebody else's business and her plan of intervention is to get Jesus to do it. Now some have suggested that that the reason Mary enlists the help of Jesus is because she knew of his power before the world did. Right? I mean, think of the Kents as they're raising Clark. And they see that he runs faster than the train in the cornfield. They have a hunch that, that this boy is special. Could we say the same about, about Mary? She has a hunch that, that, that Jesus' is, his power is great and she knows it because she knows him. And, and she's just waiting for it to be unleashed in The world. Mary says to him, they have no wine. And Jesus, in in in, in what we read, is a really curt and and rude exchange, doesn't call her mother, but instead says woman. Not mother, but woman. What concern of it is to you and to me. Now, if we weren't talking about Jesus, we weren't talking about Mary, maybe we would give ourselves the permission to see how hilarious this exchange really is I mean imagine the scene going something like this Jesus Jesus come here what mom come here what they're out of wine you know can can you do something about that you know, like a little miracle magic. You know, can you can you make something happen? Mom, why are you always asking me to perform in public? <laughs> I don't want to. You're always sticking your nose into, into where it doesn't belong. Can't you just stay out of it? This is it's not my time. It, it's not a concern to us, and I imagine Mary kind of walking away as Jesus heads back out to this imaginary dance floor, and, and Mary whispering to the servants, just do whatever he says. I mean, this is a funny story. This is a funny exchange. And so as you get to this point in the narrative, you begin to think, you know what, this is just going to end. They're going to end. It's going to, party's going to go on, there's, but there's going to be no more wine, And yet there's a transition in the way that John tells the story that that doesn't give us reason as to why Jesus does in fact decide, after he's quite curt with his mother, why he does decide to actually take her request on, why he decides to actually do something, even when he said, for maybe theological reasons, it's not my time to show the world who I am. But all of a sudden, there's a switch. It changes. He's, He's ready to show the world who he is. And so he asked the servers to fill to the brim six stone jars with water and then to draw from them and to take what they have drawn to the sommelier, to the chief steward, to the maitre d', maybe. And that's exactly what they do. And to the steward's amazement, the wine that the servers bring is of a higher quality, of a more choice vintage than what was served at the beginning of the party. So the steward calls the bridegroom, the host, and says everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. That's also very funny. But you have kept the good wine until now. And it is in this line, friends, that the deeper meaning of this text springs to life. For the ministry that Jesus inaugurates is a ministry that says, better things are to come. Better things are to come. That Jesus has the power to bring something, to, to do something even better than the good that has already been experienced. But in order for that to happen... Jesus has to move from playing the role of a guest and assume the role of host. For it was not the guest's job to worry about the wine, it's the host's job. And what Jesus does in this story, at least in this small way, he assumes the role of host and provides a greater wine for the party. William Hood is a retired art history professor whose career included teaching posts at Oberlin College, at Columbia University, and, and at New York University, completed both a bachelor's and a master's degree in fine arts in Athens at the University of Georgia. Dr. Hood throughout his teaching career viewed his discipline, the discipline of art history, as a platform to shape morality. He actually engaged his work in such a way to understand it that the study of art could actually produce meaningful, life-changing conversations that help shape our value, values rather, and our morals, both from a social and religious perspective. But that wasn't always the case for him. In an article he wrote a few years ago that was run in the New York Times, Dr. Hood confessed that as a younger man, his goal in studying art history was really quite simple. He wanted to be a famous art scholar. That's why he studied art. He wanted to be a famous art scholar. Fame, rather than making a difference, seems to have been his goal. Well, that all changed one January night in 1968 when he was invited by a friend named Wanda White to be a guest at a small dinner party. Mrs. White was a, Ms. White, rather, was a young Atlanta uh, public school teacher. She lived not too far from the campus of Emory. And in the fall of 1967, just a few months before this dinner party, Mrs. White, rather, began helping to manage the schedule of one Coretta Scott King. And so she invited the kings to a dinner party. The young hostess invited a very small group of friends. They were all in their 20s, including the then Ph.D. student and aspiring famous art historian, William Hood. Dr. Hood wrote about preparing for that party, he said, We anticipated the approaching dinner with empty-headed excitement of young people who rarely think beyond their own self-interest. As the dinner party commenced, it was clear that Ms. White was more than happy to give up one of the key roles of any host or hostess in a dinner party. And that is setting the direction and framing the conversations that should take place at the dinner table. Now this is a finer point of etiquette, right? A guest should not arrive at a dinner party and seek to take over the conversation. A guest should not come with their own agenda, with their own topics that they want to talk about while everyone is is gathered together over the meal. That job is left to the host. But Ms. White was more than happy to give up that role to Martin Luther King Jr. And so he set the direction for their conversations. Poverty, the Vietnam War, race and class in America, asking provocative and moral questions of the host and the other guests throughout the night. Dr. King, at least in this small way, switched roles. He went from being a guest to being a host. At one point in the conversation, Dr. King turned to Dr. Hood and began to ask him about his passion for the arts and why in the world would anybody want to study art history. And this is what he says recalling that conversation. Dr. King asked what I thought art could accomplish that other forms of communication could not. I remember that he said that he'd rarely discussed art or even thought much about it. As I stammered an answer I cannot recall, he listened with the concentration of someone who genuinely wanted to understand. Never before, and rarely since, had I witnessed such authentic humility. It was so simple, so powerful, a form of energy that for a few moments it freed me from my bondage to myself. A conversation that cannot have lasted more than ten minutes ended up changing the way I thought about my life. When I got back to New York, my viewpoint toward earning a doctorate shifted. The determination to use my education to become a famous scholar gradually made room for a half-baked resolution to become a useful art historian. I began to consider the moral and religious content of Renaissance art, and once I got a job teaching art history at an institution whose values encouraged me to develop that ambition, teaching became a means for me to help students identify and examine their own morals and values. That remains my goal. The short conversation I had with Dr. King had a lasting effect. Because Dr. King played the role of host even as he was a guest, at least in this one way in setting the direction of the conversation, William Hood's whole life changed. And the world changed. I certainly believe that Dr. Hood would have contributed good things to the world had he not been at that dinner party. But I also have a suspicion that better things and greater things came into his life and through his life because Dr. King positioned himself to provoke him to think about his career, to think about his passion in moral terms, to think of his vocation in a way that could actually make a difference in the world. So in a like manner, and on a much grander scale, the same, brothers and sisters, is true about Jesus. When Jesus is no longer a guest in your life, when Jesus is no longer a guest in my life, when when Jesus takes And assumes the role of host, greater things will come. Now for many of us, we are content to have Jesus be a guest, right? I do this all the time. When Jesus is a guest in my life, I can can arrange the seating chart how I want. I can bring him as close to me as I'd like, or seat him as far away as possible. I can dictate the direction of the conversation according to my own will, not according to his. I can tell him when it's time to show up, "Hey Jesus, uh, Sunday morning's a good time. How about 10:45? See you there." And I can tell him when to go home. Jesus it was a great day today, but Monday's coming. I've got school, I've got work, I've got things to do, I've got a social calendar, I've got to keep up. We'll, we'll, we'll see you soon. But when Jesus is the host, he tells you where to sit. When Jesus is the host, he dictates the conversation. He asks hard questions that provoke us to consider our role and our con- contributions as guests in his kingdom. And he tells us when it is time to arrive and when it's time to go out and serve the world. For some of us, metaphorically speaking, we are running out of the good wine in our lives. And Jesus, friends, can do a miracle. Can do a miracle in your life and in my life, but only when he is invited to move from the role of guest to the role of host. The wedding guest will not receive the better wine unless Jesus assumes the role of host. If greater things are going to come in our lives, and even in the life of this church, if greater days are ahead of us, if better things are to come, if we're going to participate in a life that makes a difference, if we're going to discover a deeper sense of purpose, if the wine is going to flow, then Jesus must move from a guest in our lives, and in our church, and assume the role of host. It's possible that Mary knew exactly what would happen if Jesus was put in charge to overcome the problem of running out of wine. It is possible that Mary knew something about Jesus' power to follow good things with even greater things. The question is, do we? Do we know that? May we discover that when Jesus is the host, greater things will come. May we discover what it will take to make him that host, to put him in charge of our lives, put him in charge of this church, and may we, by God's grace, do it and indeed receive better things to come. For the sake of the gospel, And for the sake of the world, may it be so. Amen. Brothers and sisters, God is always blessing us, so we are called to bless others, too, in love and care. In this spirit, I want you to invite you to take each other's hands, to receive the blessing of God, Throughout this song that I will tell the lyric for you. Give me, Lord, your blessing. May your hand be wi- be always with me. May you expand my vision and set me free from evil. For me not to suffer harm, give me your blessing, Lord. you